Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 4 through 6. We won't get through all of it, but that's going to be our text. And this is the message entitled, The Reasons for Unity, and this is part 1. Paul has admonished the Ephesians to walk in unity in verse 1 through 3 of chapter 4. By a walk worthy of their calling, that's what they were to do. Verse 1, by divine virtues to enable them to bear up with one another in love, this is how they were to do it. Verse 2, and then by doing everything to not disrupt the divine unity of the Spirit, this is why they were to do it in verse 3. The general unity for us now will be presented under the Trinity. The Trinity keeps coming up throughout this epistle. Verse 4, you have the Spirit. Verse 5, you have the Son. Verse 6, you have the Father. Now the specifics of unity will be presented in triplets under each person of the Trinity. Verse 4, 5, and 6. Seven times he repeats the word one. So now Paul gives to them seven reasons why they should walk in unity from verse 4 down to 6. We're not going to cover all of them tonight. We'll cover just three. Let me read them off though. First, because there is one body. Verse 4. Second, because there is one spirit. Verse 4. Thirdly, because we are called in one hope of our calling. Verse 4, and that's all we'll cover tonight, but let me read the rest. Fourth, verse 5, because there is one Lord. Fifth, because there is one faith. Sixth, because there is one baptism. Seventh, because there is one God and Father of all. Seven reasons why we should walk in unity. They're great reasons. Let's, let me read the text here. Chapter 4, verse 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope, one hope of your calling. The first reason we are to walk in unity, Paul says, is because there is one body. The word body, as you know, is a metaphor that is unique of the church of Jesus Christ. The metaphor of a body never is used for the people of God in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the wife or the spouse of Yahweh. Israel is referred to as a treasure, vine, olive tree, fig tree. But Israel is never referred to as a body, ever. The metaphor of a body is uniquely used at times for people, particularly the people of God, in the New Testament. The word body, soma, can mean different things. The context is important. It can refer to a physical body of a human being or an animal. Uh, it's tangible, it's alive, sometimes dead. It can indicate the bodies of planets or stars when the scriptures speak about the heavenly uh, bodies. It can be used figuratively or as a metaphor for a number of people united in a close society or family. This is the way it's being used here for the church, the family of God, those born again. The word is used 146 times in the New Testament. Now the word body, soma, is used here in Ephesians for the family of the people of God, the church body, with only one exception. All of them are used for the body of the church. The exception is found in Ephesians 5.28, the only exception when it states that the husband is to love his wife as his own body. And he's talking about the 
negative practice of the sin nature to love myself first. And if I could love my wife the way I love myself, my wife would be just blessed. That's what the Bible says. The problem is that we love ourselves more than others. So Paul takes that sinful practice. Now this is the only exception where the word body is used for a man's personal body. In chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, it says, And he put all things under his feet, speaking about Jesus, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In a way that we can't understand, we are the fullness of him, though he is the creator and redeemer of us. It's a mystery. In chapter 2, verse 16, it says, And that he might reconcile them both to God, speaking about Jew and Gentile, in one body through the cross, thereby putting the death, the enmity. One body. No longer Israel, no longer Gentile, but Jew and Gentile, one under the church of Jesus Christ, one body. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Our text is before us here and you have others in 412, 416, two times, 523 and 530, you can read them. Every one of them is used to indicate the body of the church, as we'll see. Now, the body of the church, of Jesus, is made up of a diversity of people, as you know. There are different temperaments among people. God saves sinners. That's the general category. We all qualify. And we've got all kinds of diversity within that major category, sinners. So we can say, okay, everybody line up who's a sinner. Everybody have to line up there. It's one category. But then we start saying, okay, all you moody people on the next, to go to the right, one step. All you cheerful people to the left. Introverts, Right? Extroverts, left, you start dividing. We have all these kinds in the body. There are different personalities. There's some people that are real serious. Sometimes they're thought of being mad all the time. They're just serious. They're just quiet. Others are lighthearted people. They just seem to kind of just prance around and bounce around and not a care in the world. Then there's anxious people. Everything gets to them. They can't rest. Then you've got the jokers. Somehow we think that if we're Christians, we can't laugh. <laughs> That's an old Puritanic uh, concept. You've got pessimists, you've got optimists. And they're all Christians. They all fit into Christianity. We're just different. There's different races and nationalities. Now, when Paul is writing, he's talking simply about two categories, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews is the nation of Israel, the people of God, and the rest are Gentile. <laughs> That's the way God sees it. Now he has the third category, the church of God. So you're a Jew, you're Gentile, or you're Jew or Gentile in the church of God. We've got Caucasians, commonly called white. But nobody's white. This is white. No one's white. Okay? Um, we have black people. Different shades of black. You guys have met Vincent's um, the husband of Melissa, who's white, white. 
And he is black, black. If he doesn't smile, you won't find him in the dark. Nicest guy. Then you've got black people who are lighter. Then you've got brown people. Latinos, Mexicans, South Americans. You've got lighter Mexicans and darker Mexicans. You've got Heinz 57 all mixed in there. When people hear me speak Spanish, they get shocked at first. But my dad's mom is Mexican. My dad's dad was German, my grandpa. And my mom's parents were Spaniards. So you've got me all mixed up there. Mexican, German, and Spanish. You've got yellow people, the Asian. You've got red people, the native Indians. And a lot of these are Christians. You've got such a diversity in the church of Jesus Christ. Then you have every kind of sinner in the church. Hopefully ex-sinners. Moral and ethical people. That get saved and come into the church. Fornicators. Adulterers. Homosexuals. Liars. Thieves. Covetous. Drunkards. Addicts. Revilers. Extortioners, I presume we qualify. And they're all Christians, they're born again. It's amazing, the grace of God. The body of the church of Jesus is made up of many local bodies also on earth. But it's one body in heaven. The church body is the whole family in heaven and earth that is named. Ephesians 3.15 tells us an organism, not an organization. Jesus asked to the church daily such as should be saved. It's an organism. He asked to it. One more of his children, a son, a daughter of God, who repents, who hears the gospel, who rather than renting their garments, they rent their heart. They call upon the Lord to be saved. The body of Christ transcends denominationalism, sectarianism, and exclusivism. It's an organism. There is a visible body of the church that includes people that are not born again, or will fall away back into the world. So we see the physical body here, the number of people. You see a larger congregation, a smaller congregation. But not everybody that's there is the real church. Some will fall away. But we can see people present. But God alone knows who is going to be with him. There is the invisible body of the church that includes all the people of God that will be with Jesus in heaven. He sees that completely. God has never said, I didn't think he would make it. <laughs> all right, what are you doing here? The body is comprised of many members with diverse gifts and callings, but it's still one body. You getting the message? I, I am always amazed as your pastors just through the years, from the very inception of the home Bible study back in March of 1980, how God just always brought the people and called them out and gave them gifts and desires to serve, to do whatever. And he, he does that every time we've gotten together since then, and he puts it all together. 
And he brings the right people and he anoints them and he gifts them and he directs them and he guides them and everybody does his part and it, everything works out. <laughs> if you ran the church or if you ran your personal business the way I run the church, you would go broke because it wouldn't work. My son just uh, moved out of state. He says, Dad, just retire. Come up here. Start a church. Now, he knows better than that. But he just, he's got to try anyway. I said, X, it wouldn't work. I cannot go and start a church. It won't work. The only reason Pasadena has worked is because God called me to do the church. If he hadn't called me, it wouldn't work. It's just that simple, ladies and gentlemen. That no man can glory. That the man that is used be the first to know and the always the last to remember. Always. That is because God has done it. Because God has put it together. For no other reason. Now, the body is depicted figuratively in the illustration of a physical body. Hands, feet, eyes, ears. An illustration, again, that I've told you often that every generation could not miss. Um, you would never have to worry about culture obliterating that, inf- that illustration. And God knows that, so he put it in the scriptures. And in spite of the vivid illustration and the very simple and incredible function of a body, people miss it when it comes to apply it to the church. Though they teach it, though they see it, though they believe it, then they try to run the church like an organization rather than the organism that it is. Also, they try to organize it, sanitize it, and everything else. Rather than letting Jesus be the head and entrusting every part to go to him as part of the body. It's the easiest way to do ministry. You don't have to lose sleep. I have never lost one night of sleep over this church. Not one night. I've lost sleep for other reasons, but not for the church. Because it's not my church. I haven't built it. You don't belong to me. But I'm responsible for you. You belong to Jesus. Christ is the head of the body of his church, Ephesians 1, 22, 4, 15, 5, 23. Always the head. Before Pastor Chuck died, the last conference before he died, he was being pressed by his big six or eight to declare the heir of Calvary Chapels. Chuck just sat in front, in the front row and says, well, I think Jesus is head of the church. Well said. (laughs) Men forget this. Men love power. Men love to be bowed to. Men love to give orders. It's in us, innate, natural, corrupt. Now you take that natural, corrupt nature and you hand it to the Lord and allow him to use it through the new creation to serve him. It can be an incredible, incredible tool. 
But you've got to stay out of the way. You've got to make sure that he's the one that's doing it and that you're only doing what he calls you to do. That you don't trust him to begin to build the church and then you get a little bit disillusioned and disappointed with him and all of a sudden you think you can do a little better. So you start trusting man's methodologies and church growth principles and the emergent church strategies and philosophies and whatever else comes down the road. And um, you may build the church bigger by numbers. But now it's your church. It's not the church of Jesus Christ. Now you're responsible to control it and to handle it and to maintain it. Now you will lose sleep. Now you will have to worry about the finances. So what you'll do is you'll press the people and beg the people and cry to the people and send out letters and put advertisements Invite people to your crusade. They're free. Then you get there and they tell you how much they want you to give. Even writing their own check in front of the whole crowds. Pharisees. Liars. If it's free, then don't take an offering. If an offering is going to be taken, say... There will be a free will offering taken, but you're not forced to give. I can handle that. No problem. But see, when you've built a machine, now you've got to keep it up. It becomes yours. Paul told some of the Ephesian elders... Some of you will draw disciples unto yourselves in Acts 20, 29 through 30, the last time he met with them. When he writes to Timothy in First and Second Timothy, it had already come to pass, in fact, that they had divided and brought in heresy already. Read the epistles to Timothy. They're just full of doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Stop their mouths. Don't let them teach. Don't let them. Those divisive people have nothing to do with them, on and on and on. Listen to the new song of unity in one body sung before the throne of God in heaven by the church of Jesus Christ. Revelation 5, 9. Um, you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made us a kingdom of priests to our God. One body. <laughs> There's not the black section, there's not the brown section, there's not the fornicating section, there's not the adulterer section, they're, they're one body. Priest unto God. What is to be in heaven, God's perfect will is to be done on earth also. Remember the Lord's Prayer? So we are to function that same way. That's what I love about the church here. When I look out, I see everything, everyone. <laughs> the worst thing that can happen is to look to the pulpit and see the pastor and then look out to the audience and everybody look like the pastor or something. <laughs> and sometimes that, you know, people that try to dress like a I, I knew this pastor, his assistant was just, I mean, he spoke like him, walked like him, quacked like him. It was like... You wanted to slap them. I mean, what? <laughs> People are just weird. There are individuals who, are, who see unity in one body, only in terms of denominations. If you don't do the things the way they do, then you aren't able to join them or even suggest um, that you might not be saved. Some would divide the body of Christ simply over the manner of water baptism or the name. Do you baptize face down, face back, in Jesus' name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Do you sprinkle? Do you douse? Do you hose? What do you do? 
Then you have those individuals that are so deceived by the self-righteousness of their own bodies and lives that if they ever knew your past, they would excommunicate you. Because after all, church is no place for sinners, it's for good people. On the other hand, we have those who claim to have new and added revelation to the Word of God making themselves an elite group, the true church, of course, so they say they are. But the, the canon is closed. No one speaks under inspiration of the Spirit of God as the prophets did of all or the apostles. And we can, can't forget those that um, declare themselves to be not only the body of Christ, but the very exclusive head of Christ on the earth with full authority and power handed down by Christ to them supposedly uh, with their full ordination of priests and cardinals and papal orders through the Apostle Peter. That would be the Catholic Church, the only dispenser of salvation, they say. That's blasphemous. What a mess. You have so many subdivisions within these various denominations and religions, and yet Paul says there is one body. Ephesians 2.16, One body. The fact that the body of the church is one body does not mean that we don't confront wrong or false doctrine for the sake of unity and simply love one another. That's a misnomer. Okay? It would be like you being a parent and just for the sake of love, you don't confront your child when you do something wrong. You destroy them. Matthew sixteen twelve says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus warned the apostles, Be careful of the teaching of the Sadducees and Pharisees. False doctrine. As I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some, command, that they teach no other doctrine. 1 Timothy 1.3. Pretty strong words. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient and humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses, and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Second Timothy two twenty four to twenty six. So confrontation is a time to stop something, other times to correct something, other times just in hope that they might repent. But all those three are in the positive. They're out of love. They're out of concern. First, love for God, and the honor of God. And second, love for sinners that they might turn. The unity of the one body works and functions efficiently by the gifts imparted to each believer in the body. Paul the Apostle in Romans 12, 3 through 5, uh, says in verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, sound-minded, as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. So in other words, what we receive from God, we cannot boast about it or think it's because we are somewhere and somehow special. For Paul says, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why are you boasting? So in other words, it's just grace and the gift. In verse 4, he says, for as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. Not all of us are teachers. Not all of us have the gift of tongues. Not all of us have the gift of prophecy. Not all have the gift of giving. Not all have the gift of whatever. Fill in the blank. All of us are different. Verse 5 says, So we, having many, are one body in Christ and individual members one of another. So we're related to one another. We, 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 we affect one another and, and we build up one another. 
Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Understanding the headship of Christ, understanding the organism of the body of Jesus Christ, it's his body. He adds to it. Being thankful that I'm part of it. So the first reason we are to walk in unity is because there's one body. Simple. Second reason comes in verse 4 there, the second part, is that we are to walk in unity is because there is one spirit. Okay, remember all these this three passages like that and the, the triunity of things here is under the, the, the trinity. You have the spirit. You're going to have the son later on. You're going to have the father. And so here the word spirit refers to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. Just as the Father, just as the Son, and we'll see that as we move along. And the Spirit is mentioned eight times up to this verse in our text. In chapter 1, verse 13, the Spirit is the earnest or down payment, the engagement ring, if we will, given to us. Ephesians 1, 13. In 117, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. 218, for through Him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. 222, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. All of these refer to the Holy Spirit. 3.5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy prophets and apostles. 3.16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. 4.3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We saw that last week. In our text, there is one body and one spirit. This is your call and one hope of your calling. The spirit is intertwined with the other two persons of the Godhead, being one God. Jesus said in John fourteen twenty six, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Truth. In Acts 5, 3 and 4, the Holy Spirit is called God. That's where Ananias is the fire light to the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, 9, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of the Lord. In 8, 9 of Romans, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And in Hebrews 9, 14, the Holy Spirit is called eternal spirit all intertwined did Jesus not say the father is going to send you the paracleo the comforter the helper and then he said I'm going to send them to you and then he says I the spirit and the father will make our abode in you <laughs> all three we usually say well our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit the father is there the son's there the Holy Spirit is there crowded place The Holy Spirit has been constantly active, guiding and speaking to the church since the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.4, the Spirit gave birth to the body of the church and filled them with the Spirit at Pentecost. They spoke in their various dialects. The Spirit comforted the churches, it says, of Judea, Galatia, or Galilee, and Samaria in Acts 8.31. Very specific, the Holy Spirit comforted these churches. All the havoc, all the persecution that was going on. Acts 13, 2, the Holy Spirit says, Now separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry which I have called them. He speaks. Very clearly. Acts fifteen twenty eight, the Spirit directed the work to the Gentiles. For it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden. James is speaking at the First Church Council there. 
I like the order. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Today the church says, it seems good to us. We don't know about the Holy Spirit. Wow. Acts 16, 6 and 8. Paul and Silas were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach in the word in Asia and Bithynia. That's different, huh? God says don't preach. Not here, not right now. God told Jeremiah, don't pray for them anymore. So God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. Acts 18.5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He was compelled by the Spirit. You ever been compelled by the Spirit to speak to somebody, to do something, to go somewhere, to just believe what he's telling you? He just compels you. He's just, he doesn't force you. That's not what the word compel in that sense means. But he just, he impresses upon you and he directs you and you know it's him and you have to obey. Acts twenty twenty three. the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations awaited Paul. Wow. Now we like the Holy Spirit to speak to us about the positive things. But how about the negative things? <laughs> I don't know if you remember, I don't even know, they have them anymore, the little bread boxes, they used to have all the promises of God, little bread, all positive. Then throw some curses in there, let's see what happens. You know, throw some, some warnings in there. Oh, no. What do they say to you? Bad energy, bad vibes? Oh, no, no. And, and some of that language comes from Christians. You know what I mean? It's amazing. Acts twenty twenty eight. the Holy Spirit made men overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The Holy Spirit makes overseers of men and shepherds over the flock. God helped the person who calls himself to ministry and then God helped the people under them. There's danger enough with being called and getting weird. <laughs> Let alone with starting weird and getting weirder. Acts twenty one eleven. Agabus prophesied by the Holy Spirit. Thus say the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this bell. And deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Paul got warning after warning. One last one. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one spirit. We were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. That baptism is of the spirit, not of water. You can be baptized into water. That doesn't unite you, incorporate you into nothing but the water. You are incorporated into the organism of the body of Jesus Christ by being born again as you receive the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is like our nervous system. It makes everything work, coordinate, accomplish the will of God in us and through us. You see a well-oiled athlete train and years and denial and and you just see him run or whatever it is that he does and he's just some of these basketball players I mean these guys are animals they're just almost seven foot they weigh 280 to 300 pounds coming down that thing and they're just fast they're just agile have you ever thought of the nervous system putting it all together how about a centipede a hundred legs and he never trips. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in the body of Jesus Christ. He can do it all. He can coordinate it. He can disperse. He can correct. He can guide. He can do. He, can, he, he does all of this. There's no sweat to him. Mere knowledge of the scriptures without dependency on the Holy Spirit does not guarantee obedience, by the way. Only self-righteousness 
only dead orthodoxy, only frustration, only hypocrisy. You can know God's word. You can study God's word. But if you only look into the word without the power of the spirit, that's what's going to happen. One of those four things or maybe others too. Because you're attempting to do it in your own ability. When you find yourself in that situation, you literally are in Romans chapter 7. That that I want to do, I end up, that I don't want to do, I end up doing. That which I end up doing, I don't want to do. Or wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? That's willful defeat, because I'm trusting myself. I know what I want to do. I know the word of God. But I find not one good thing in me. So I must cry out, O wretched man that I am. Who? Who? Not what? Who shall deliver me from the body of death? Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Move to chapter 8. Life from the Spirit. Romans 7 is not warfare. It's willful defeat, trusting in your flesh. You still think you can do it? Hmm. The person of the Holy Spirit and his empowerment is essential to be a witness to Jesus and then for Jesus. There are three prepositions associated with the Holy Spirit, as you know. The word para means with. The word en is in. And the word epi is upon. Jesus spoke about it in John fourteen seventeen and Acts 1, 8. There's other areas, but those will do. And the Holy Spirit is with the believer and in the believer when he or she accepts the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit is in the world, but the world doesn't pay attention or know the Holy Spirit. But when you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes in you. And the Holy Spirit empowers the believer now to be a witness for Jesus for service, Acts 1.8. That the baptism, Acts 1.5, you should be baptized not many days from now, Jesus said. He uses the phrase, we should use the phrase. Use biblical phrases so you don't have to redefine them. I was doing something like now on the computer watching some of these YouTubes with Brian McLaren and uh, Tim Keller. Tim Keller's kind of a mugwomp. He's half here and half in the, in the, uh, in, in the uh, merchant church. He's not quite all in merchant, but he is. But he hangs out with these guys. And just listen to these guys. And, and it's just amazing to me. Just the nonsense and how they speak. And, and, and they're so intellectual. And they're just, you know, and they're so academic. And But what are they turning out? They got huge churches of young people. God will hold them responsible. If it isn't by the power of the Spirit of God, you will not be transformed into the image and conform unto Christ. You'll just be active in God's work. Get involved in community. Community works. Social issues. And so you have all these guys involved in global warming and, you know, social justice and all that. And it's, it's crazy. The upon experience is filling the baptism. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Pentecost, Samaria. How's the Cornelius? Acts 19, the Ephesian elders. Bam, wham, baptized. <laughs> Empowered. That God might do for them what they cannot do for themselves. You need that constantly. I need that constantly. The Holy Spirit brings about the only unity in the one body of the church. Um, as we walk in the Spirit and do not fulfill the lust of the flesh in Galatians 5.16. As we bear the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians 5.22. As we do not grieve the Spirit in Ephesians 4.30. As we are constantly filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. And as we always pray in the Spirit constantly, Ephesians 6.18. And as we not quench the Spirit in Ephesians 1 Thessalonians 5.19, and as we are sanctified by the Spirit in belief of the truth in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. It's the Word and the Spirit. Like a lock and a key, 
like a man and a woman, husband and wife. They go together. You can't separate them. So the second reason we are to walk in unity is because there is one spirit. Simple. Third reason. Because we are called in one hope of our calling. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Now, notice the Christian hope is one of, of a kind. Salvation imparted by God. Paul stated that the distinct and only hope is one of certainty, not one of uncertainty or chance, but the absolute certainty. The word hope, as you know, it means to be confidently anticipate or expect, usually with pleasure. This hope is based on the revelation of the Word of God, a divine work in us in salvation. That's the hope. The word called and calling both refer to the same hope of salvation, referring back to verse 1. It's tied to it. It's talking about the same thing. That hope is salvation as a whole. Paul has prayed that the eyes of the Ephesians' understanding might be enlightened to know what is the hope of God's calling in salvation in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. They were able to understand the riches and glory of his inheritance in the saint, verse 18. Because they're born again, they have the Spirit of God. They have the Word of God. They were able to understand the exceeding greatness of His power towards those who believe according to the working of His mighty power, the resurrection, in verse 19. Only Christians can understand. Only Christians can experience that. Paul has reminded the Ephesians that at one time they were lost, having no hope in chapter 2, verse 12. They were without Christ, alien from the commonwealth, of Israel, stranger from the covenant of promise. They had no hope without God in the world. Pretty glim, pretty dark. That was you. That was I. 42 years ago. That was my life. And by the grace of God, he turned it around. Now notice the Christian hope. They are called to in their call to salvation is that one day they will be glorified. Paul now deals with the accomplished end of our hope. That one day our certain hope will be realized that of being with Jesus for all eternity. Have you ever seen the face of people when you tell them that you know you can't wait to be with Jesus for all eternity? Go Our world, our nation, our youth, our young adults are so far gone away from God. They are so sold on themselves, their intellect, their abilities, man, and no rules. That when you tell them you believe in Jesus Christ, that you believe that you need to be redeemed and forgiven for your sins and that you will spend eternity with Jesus, they look at you like you just came from Mars. Remember the word hope means to confidently anticipate and expect, usually with pleasure. And remember this hope is based on the revelation of God's word, his divine work in us. So we're not doing it, he's doing it. This one hope begins with regeneration and a daily transformation being conformed to Jesus Christ. You are the very best witness of your life. You know when you were born again and from that day on, every day you have seen whether you have yielded and been transformed or whether you stand still or regress. And you are able to see how far you've come from that first day. You know. You live with you, (laughs) the real you. Other people just live with the outside you, but you live with the inside you, (laughs) the real you. We once walked according to the prince and the power of the air, Satan, Ephesians 2, 2, children are wrapped by nature. We then were raised with Christ and made to sit together in the heavenlies with him in Ephesians 2, 6. This is all through regeneration. 
born again. We no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles in the futility of our mind. Our understanding darkened or alienated anymore from the life of God. Due to the ignorance and blindness of the heart, Ephesians 4.17. That's the old way. That's what we used to be. We put off in our former conduct of corruption, deceit, and lust daily. And are renewed in the spirit of our mind, putting on the new man created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, as Ephesians 4.22 and 24 says. That's all transformation that's going on. Now, this one hope involving regeneration and daily transformation will finalize one day with glorification. Some will die at birth or as infants. Others as teens or young adults. And still others as adults or old age. There's a birthday, a hyphen, and a death day. <laughs> Hopefully your life occupies more than a little hyphen. <laughs> but if it's going to make and have any meaning, it has to be in the Lord. Every person comes forth from their mother's womb and takes their first breath to be part of this world. And one day... They will breathe their last. Every person breathes 6,286,922 breaths per year. Now you can multiply it when you die by the years. It's a heck of a lot of breaths. It's appointed unto man die, and after that, the judgment. The unifying hope of the Christian is the living hope. This indicates there is a visible, vibrant existence of life depending on God for everything. When we're in the world, <clears throat> we look to our friends, we look to our cars, we look to our friends, our parties, or the things that we have, whatever we have. We have this whole thing set up. But when we're born again... We're depending on the Lord to direct and guide us and to bless us and to strengthen us and everything else. And that's even through our disappointments. This does not rule out difficulties, problems, disappointments, or tragedies, but rather the ability to deal with them to become more like Christ. Crucifying and reckoning the old man dead to sin and being conformed to the image of Christ, as Romans 6, 6, and 11, and eight twenty nine says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, in Ephesians 4.30. That means bring pain. I limit him. I say no. A parent tells a child, go do this. And they say, no. What do you mean no? Or they say yes, but they don't do it. Then you find out that they said they were going to do it. They didn't do it. It grieves you. This hope gives meaning and purpose to life, knowing God created us and saved us to bring others to Christ, that they might escape damnation. There's nothing wrong with working so you have a home, cars, some clothes, some food, and, you know, have some time and rest with your family, enjoy friends and that. But you can only do that and have so much of that, and then it's meaningless. The, the, the major... Priority in the life of believers is to pull people out of the fire. Because everything else is not going to matter. That's a priority. If we really believe in the heaven or hell. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 1 Peter 1, three. Blessed be the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has made us alive, given us a living hope, living hope that it's real, it's, it, it, it makes life, uh, rather than black and white, it makes it in color. 
And it doesn't end. There's just a transition. The unifying hope of the believer is literally the second coming. It's part of salvation, right? From the beginning to the end. Jesus could return at any time for his church in the rapture, as 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 tells us. It's called the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ in Titus 2, 13. At that time, we go before the beam of seat of Christ to be rewarded for the things we've done out of the right motives. Uh, yeah, Romans 14, 10 and 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Uh, chapter 4, verse 5, the motive, and then 2 Corinthians 5, 10. All passages for the beam of seat. So when we're raptured, we go to the beam of seat. Now, if I die before Jesus returns for the church in the rapture, then I'll be instantly present before the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. So if I kick over right now, follow my laptop, I'm done. Uh, now you guys are going to come up. Oh, look, help Pastor Rex, isn't that? I'm, gone. I'm, I'm before the Lord. You've got my corpse. But I'm before the Lord. I'm instantly present. My body will go to the grave. They will call a number and Neptune Society will come and pick me up and have a barbecue. And then hand my family a package. And when Christ comes for his church, he will raise that body up. Oh, but Pastor X, you, if you're cremated, how can they put you together? Well, how did he put together those martyrs that were burned at the stake? How's he going to do that? How about the guy who got eaten by jaws, just one leg, then his cousin another leg? There's nothing difficult for God. He told Jeremiah, is there anything too hard for me? It's a rhetorical question with only one answer. No. <laughs> Fire will do in 36 minutes what the earth will do in 36 years. No different. This is the promise of God. Listen to the first chapter, verse 13 and 14. In him... You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That's this is this, this body, the spirit, the soul is going to be two phases, instantly present, glorified body. When that rapture happens, the bodies will raise, meet the Lord in the air, be united, glorified. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 3 and 4. Beloved, now are we the children of God and it does not yet appear. Uh, or been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. First John 3, 2 and 3. A living hope. A great hope. In the world, we had all kinds of hope. We hope we didn't get busted. We hope we didn't get beat up that night. We hope we didn't get shot. We hope we didn't end up in the emergency world. We hope we didn't crash our car. We hope our girlfriend didn't get pregnant. We, we hope all kinds of things. But that's not the kind of hope the Bible talks about. Aren't you glad you've exchanged your hope? <laughs> so the third reason we are to walk in unity is because we are called in one hope of our calling. These are the first three reasons we should walk in unity. Because there is one body, because there is one spirit, because we are called in one hope of our calling. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. We pray you continue to deal with our hearts. And Lord, we thank you for just your grace over our life. As you're praying, if you're 
here tonight if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you believe that He is God who became man and died for your sins, then you can ask Him to forgive you right now. It's called repentance. Only you can make that decision. No one can make it for you. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe that Jesus is God and that He died for your sins, then you can call upon Him right now. And He's going to forgive you and give to you eternal life. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.